more this morning, uh, here's the deal. We are gonna hit three final questions. And uh, we'll, I'll just work through them consecutively. We'll try and get this done in reasonable time. To be honest with you, each of these questions could be an entire message. They could probably be an entire series. There's some tricky stuff here, but we had to really wrap things up and just try and bring it all to a close. So we're gonna go for three questions. Uh, hold on for dear life, we'll see how we go. And uh, okay, so the first question is this. Remember, these are all questions that have come from you. Someone has sent these in unless, well, who knows. But first question, is everything predetermined or do I have free will? <laughs> Woohoo! Oh boy. Man, I mean, this is like, this is a question that people have argued over and split churches over and written books. Uh, you know, probably the most debated issue in Christendom, last 500 years at least. Um, it's, it's created division. It's created all kinds of argument and scholarship and everything else, this whole issue. Uh, but I'm sure we can crack it in 10 minutes, right? You know? <laughs> Easy. Man, all I can do, really, all I can hope to do is just give you a, the briefest of sketches of how I roughly see this issue and I, my own meager understanding because I don't profess to be an expert in this stuff. Uh, it's the kind of thing where, again, we have to disagree, agree to disagree a lot because there's different perspectives. But first thing to say, I guess, on this issue is that the Bible affirms two realities. And these realities kind of exist in a, in a sort of a tension. This is the problem, is they, they feel like they pull apart from each other and we've got to try and hold them together. The first reality is that God is absolutely sovereign. That God is all-powerful, He's all-knowing, He is sovereign, He is firmly in control of history, He is sovereign over creation, He is sovereign over humanity, He knows what He's doing, He didn't just wind the world up and leave it alone, but He's involved, and He is sovereign, and He is moving His story forward. This is, I think, clear. I think it jumps off the page in the Scriptures, the sovereignty of God. Then at the same time, the Bible addresses us as responsible moral agents who can make decisions, who can exercise freedom, who can choose this rather than that, who are able to respond or reject, who have choice, who have responsibility, who have freedom. And the story of the Bible it's a story of contingency. It's a story where this decision was made and it could have been that. It's the story of real reciprocal relationship. Humanity acts, God reacts. Humanity reacts to that and on it goes. It's, you don't get the feeling that this whole thing is entirely pre-scripted. It has a sense, the story has a sense of openness to it. And so this is what creates this tension of how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God and the, the responsibility or the freedom of humanity. Take one example, okay, just to try and give this a bit of flesh. Think about Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who sentenced Jesus to death. Now, Pilate woke up one morning and standing in front of his palace was this Jewish blue-collar worker who Jews, the religious leaders of Judaism had brought for sentencing, asking him to, to sentence this man to execution to crucifixion. And as the story reads, Pilate uses his own freedom, his responsibility, his brain, his mind, his heart, and makes a decision to have Jesus handed over to be crucified. Pilate does this. He's not coerced to do it. He's not forced to do it. He's, he's lobbied by the mob, not the mob at sure, but another mob, even more brutal. 
So he's, 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 he's influenced, but Pilate's still a free man. He, he, he's making this decision by virtue of his position. But then you get to the book of Acts, and Peter is re- relaying the story, and he's telling the story of, of Jesus and, and his death and resurrection. And when he comes to the part about Jesus' crucifixion, he describes it this way. He says, Jesus was handed over by the predetermined plan of God. Now, you don't read that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What you read is Pilate doing this thing, Jesus says some things, Pilate says some things, and on it goes. But then you get to Acts, and all of a sudden, you realize there's something else going on here. There's a plan. And so here's the way that I've come to see this. It's like there are two levels operating here. There is this lower level where you and I, Pilate, every human being, we're making decisions, we're acting with autonomy, some degree of freedom. Not, none of us have complete freedom, by the way. Pure free will is an absolute myth because I can't walk through walls, squeeze toothpaste back into the tube, can't teleport myself to Venice. Well, there's a lot of things we're not free to do, right? So if anyone tells you we have complete free will, we don't. I don't believe that means that God is perfectly orchestrating every minutia that goes on. I think God's sovereignty and His providence often operate at a broader, more macro level. But God is still firmly, got His hands on the reins of human history. And he's moving the story forward. It's a bit like this. It's a bit, imagine that you are sending your kids to play in a playground that's got a fence around it. Okay? Now, you might let those kids, you know, they play on the slide for a while. Then they go play on the swings for a while. Now, all of that, they're free to do. But what they can't do is leave the playground without your permission opening the gate for them. They're in the playground. So they're free. They can go for the roundabout. They can go for the slides. They can go for the swings. But all within the parameters of your, in a sense, your control, your providence. Now, I, I think that's a li- it's pretty simplistic. I know. We can't explain God with analogies about playgrounds. But it's something that maybe we can think about as a way of understanding how perhaps God's sovereignty works. That God allows us a relative degree of freedom, but always within His own providential control of history. So nothing happens that takes him by surprise. Nothing nothing happens that catches him off guard. Nothing happens that is ultimately outside of his providential control. But within that, yeah, you can play on the swings. You can play on the slide. You can play on the roundabout. Pontius Pilate is free to do this and that. But we realize that over and above, God is in control. And there's times where the parent steps right in and takes you off the slide and puts you on the swings because you've had long enough on the slide and you're starting to hurt some of the other kids. You know, I think there are times when God does that too. How do you know? How can I tell? Is he, is he, is he moving in or is he standing back? I don't think you're ever going to know. Sometimes you can tell in retrospect. You can look back and see the hand of God more clearly. But how are we to know when God might literally be, be, be somehow moving in and specifically orchestrating as opposed to when he's standing back and simply ensuring that things are happening under his sovereign control? That's how I've come to understand it. And I know that this raises a lot of questions and people are interested in how, how does this work with salvation and are we really free and so on. We don't have a lot of time, we don't have time to pursue those particular issues. But that at least hopefully is a way of thinking about uh, God's sovereignty operating at this providential macro level of history, moving things forward, but giving us within His sovereignty the freedom to make decisions. And I don't think that takes away from God's sovereignty because that's sometimes the argument, that, well, if God gives us freedom, then He's not sovereign. I think God can sovereignly choose to give us freedom. And bear in mind that He could take it away any second. Our, our freedom, any degree of freedom and responsibility we have is at His sheer pleasure. He still 
gives us that as a gift, and he may revoke it at any time. So it's always within his control. It's always within the good providence of God. Okay? All right. There's no easy gear shift to this next question. It doesn't relate at all. So I'm just going to launch straight in. Here it is. You ready? What about ghosts? <laughs> all right. What about ghosts? How do we get from God's sovereignty to ghosts? Okay. It's the beauty of this series. We're all over the map. All right. What about ghosts? And this is very topical because, uh, you know, recently there has been an alleged sighting of the ghost of Michael Jackson. Some of you may have seen him. Uh, you know that video camera touring around Neverland and then it turns around the, the corner and you see in the, next to the fireplace or whatever it is, this willowy, shadowy, uh, elusive figure that possibly could be somehow construed as maybe the figure of Michael Jackson if you had a pretty rich imagination. But this is, you know, and, and, and there are TV programs like Ghost Whisperer, like Medium, where you have people drawing on paranormal, supernatural powers, apparently, to solve crimes and do things like this. Uh, there's some, I saw on TV the other day, there's some psychic in town at the moment who's claiming to have a window into the beyond. A window into the beyond, I don't know. Uh, and then you have, you know, psychics that get used to try and solve crimes, TV programs, uh, with that sort of thing going on. And so all of this stuff, how do we understand this as Christians? What do we do with the ghost of Michael Jackson? How do we figure this thing out? Well, I think there's two mistakes that Christians can make, that people in general can make. The first is to assume that everything is paranormal and to see spirits and ghosts and ghoulies and supernatural things around every single corner, when in fact there is often a purely naturalistic explanation for these things, all right? Sometimes we want to imagine that this is somehow a bizarre paranormal event where in fact there can be just something perfectly explainable or even not that explainable, but it's somehow caused by the laws of physics and logic and so on. Uh, and people have said, in the Michael Jackson case, people have explained clearly how if someone walked past here at that time, you'd get this silhouette over here. So I think we need to have a healthy skepticism about this sort of stuff. We have to be realistic and not be those who see a spirit, a demon, a ghost, a ghoulie behind every corner, okay? But then I think Christians can be in danger of making the opposite mistake, which was, is, is that we assume everything is purely naturalistic. And we assume that, that no paranormal stuff happens at all. And that would be a mistake. Because that is not the world that the Bible describes, a world that's just somehow purely naturalistic, that everything is just what you can see, touch, taste, hear. The Bible presents us with God's creation being not just human beings, not just flesh and blood, but also a spiritual realm, for lack of a better term. And you might be surprised to find that in the Bible, we are not human beings and not the only beings that God created. He also created angelic beings angels. Now, for some people, this, as soon as you start talking about this stuff, angels, really? It all sounds very Lord of the Rings, but that's because we are so used to assuming that we're the center of the universe. Human beings, that's all there is. We're the whole deal. In fact, we're not. There are other beings, angels. They are personal. They're not human, but they are personal beings, and God created them. They are His messengers. They are His servants. They do His bidding. They do His will uh, on earth, within this creation. And through the biblical story, you can read times angels appear to people, they speak to people, they interact with human beings. But here's the thing about angels, they're always completely truthful. They don't lie, and they don't misrepresent themselves. 
They don't try and pass themselves off as being the ghost of Michael Jackson. Angels don't do that because they are on the side of God, they are on the side of truth, they are His servants who do His bidding. And angels, their purpose in creation, if they ever do appear, is always expressly connected to the will and the purpose and the providence of God. They come for specific purposes, to reveal something, to guide, to lead, to show. Now, is it possible that an angel could appear today? I think so. I don't see any indication that angels somehow disappeared off the map. I don't think it's the norm. But through the biblical story, it's clear that these beings do come from heaven to earth, that they can appear and interact at God's pleasure. But they're here to protect, and they're here to do God's will, not ours. They're not our little uh, genies in the bottle to, to, to do our bidding. They're to do His, God's will, His bidding. Now, the thing with the angelic beings is this, that early on in the story, even before God created humanity, one of these angelic beings decided that he wasn't content being subservient to God's will, but in fact he wanted to be co-equal with God, or even maybe a little bit greater. He basically wanted to be, you know, wanted to be a partner with God. Let's do this together. And so he staged a mutiny against God, which again is, raises a whole other set of questions about did those angels have free will and so on. We can't even go there. But Somehow this happened. We don't have a lot to go on in the Scriptures about this whole scenario. But because of the arrogance and the pride and the rebellion of that angelic being, whose name was Lucifer, God expelled him from heaven, and he took a third of the angels with him. So now those angelic beings exist to tear down and destroy and take away and, 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 and pull down the work of God wherever they possibly can. They come to bring confusion. They come to lead people astray. They come to pull people away from the work of God to distract them, to do whatever is counter to the way that God's story and His redeeming healing work is moving. And these uh, angelic beings in the Scriptures variously are called uh, demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits. They are under now the, the, the control of Lucifer, also called the devil, the Satan, the accuser, the father of lies. On it goes. So there is that whole world going on as well. And, and we need to be tuned into this, not in a kooky, weird fantasy Harry Potter way, but in a way that we just realize this stuff is real. One of the key strategies, I think, of Satan and his minions is to appear in ways that will entice us. And to appear in ways that we'll think, oh, this is a loved one. This is someone from the beyond. And he can give you a little bit, a little glimpse, a little foretaste, a little something exciting, something that's going to catch our attention in order to then lead us further down that road. Deceased people do not reappear. People that have passed on do not come back. And if you're seeing something that looks like someone you know, it ain't them. And it may be a much darker and sinister force. Now again, it's got to be balanced with that healthy skepticism. It may be a purely naturalistic explanation. But we also can't close our minds off to the possibility that there could be darker forces at work. And when you come across this sort of thing, and maybe you never have, don't talk to it. Don't interact with it. Don't have a conversation. Don't try and be the man and cast it out. You don't have that authority. 
Jesus has that authority. You don't have it. You don't go around saying, I name you, I condemn you, I cast you. No, no, no. Jesus is the name that we invoke whenever any of that stuff happens. And guess what? I know when you have these conversations, it kind of rattles people because you think, gosh, what's going to happen? One of these guys might appear tonight. You know what? It's not an equal playing field. The power of the risen Jesus Christ is far greater, infinitely greater than anything Satan and his cronies can throw at you. They're already defeated. They're already disarmed. They've already lost the battle. But you know what? They have the Bible too. They've read it. They know where they're going. They know that they're going down, but all they want to do is take as many people down with them as they can. They know their days are numbered. Satan's read the Bible. He knows what, what's in store, but he is fighting guerrilla warfare and he wants to take as many of us down with him as he possibly can. So he'll try and deceive and he'll try and trick and he'll try and influence, but the Bible says greater is he who lives within us, the Holy Spirit, than he who is within the world. So don't be freaked out. Don't, don't be worried. The name of Jesus is infinitely more powerful and more victorious than any of this other stuff that can go on. And the best thing to do if you ever sense that you're being exposed to any of that kind of thing is to simply call on the name of Jesus. Start talking to Jesus about it. Just start having a conversation. Jesus, I don't even know what this is. I don't understand it, but I don't want to go near it, Jesus. And I just ask now that you would come and fill this place with your goodness and your grace and your glory and your redeeming, healing presence. Just begin to bring Jesus into the situation. That's where the power is. And at the name of Jesus, the demons flee because they know who he is. You only need to read the Gospels. They can't even stand in his presence. They fall down and confess him as Lord. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the Jesus who died for us. So get a healthy perspective of the victory, of the battle. We're on the winning team. The battle's won. But yes, Satan will come against us and he'll try and allure us in. So try and hold these two things together maybe as you think about this issue of the paranormal and so on. Don't go near Ouija boards, seances, tarot cards, psychics, all that sort of stuff, because guys, there is real power in it. There is, don't be deceived by thinking that it's harmless. It's not. And that stuff opens you up to forces that you do not want to mess with. Stay away from all that kind of stuff. Flee from it and cling to the cross. Bring Jesus into any situation that you sense you might be getting into some of that dark territory. And keep reminding yourself that this is not something we need to be scared about, rattled about, shaken about. We can encourage one another in the, in the confident assurance that Jesus has won the victory. Okay. Final question. You know, I'm trying to think of the segue, but again, it's not there. The final question is, is baptism essential for salvation? Isn't it nice when you get a question and you know whatever you say, you're going to offend someone? Yeah. <laughs> It says, what a way to go out <laughs> on the question series, making some enemies. Well, you know, baptism is one of those things where uh, it's often very dependent on the tradition that you've come from as to what you think about it. If you've come from a Presbyterian background, you might have been sprinkled at birth, and you may consider that to be your baptism, um, not at birth, but at a young age. And that might for you be baptism, and you see no need to be rebaptized. If you come from a Baptist background, then probably baptism was something that happened a long time after you became a Christian and uh, may have been a symbol of something that happened earlier in your life. If you come from a Church of Christ background, it was probably tied inseparably to your conversion. Happened right at the time you became a Christian and almost seemed to be required for becoming a Christian. 
So there are different views, there are different perspectives, but um, I've found a helpful way to think about this is to think about how it actually worked in the New Testament in terms of what people actually did. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, preached a great sermon, and then at the end, he said, well, people responded and they said, now what should we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you had been in that crowd that day, and you had said, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I'm into that, what would have happened to you? You would have followed these other people, 3,000 of them, and you would have gone to the nearest lake, pool, spring of water, body of water that you could find, and you would have waded into the water, and while in the water there, you would have maybe had one of the apostles or the disciples or someone uh, ask you if this is something you truly desire to do, follow Jesus. We don't know how they might have worded the question. Maybe similar to how we ask it today. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And you would have made this confession, standing right there in the water. And then having made that confession, dedicated yourself, your life, to this risen Savior, Jesus, you would have been immediately baptized, representing this transformation that's going on in your life, going down, representing dying to the old self, the burial of the old life, and then being raised up to this new life, this dramatic visual representation of what is actually happening in your heart. Now, the thing is that all of that in the New Testament, it seems from what we can tell from the book of Acts and elsewhere, it seems like all of that happened pretty much at the same time, if not on the same day. It was all part of the package. Now, if you'd asked Peter, well, is it the baptism that saves me? Of course he would have said no. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. It's your turning your life towards Jesus that saves you. But baptism was like the occasion. It was the moment where people went down in this confession of faith, came back up to new life. It was all done, it was all part of the same package, this matrix of events. Confession, faith, repentance, baptism, all woven together so that you couldn't really pull one or the other apart because it all happened on the same day. Now, what we've tended to do in the contemporary church is we've separated these things out so that we've kept the repentance and the faith Maybe, don't know what we do with the confession part, but the faith part's there. But then the baptism part comes way, way, way later. And in my experience, the problem with this is that there never then becomes a good time to get baptized. Because you've already made this commitment back here to follow Jesus, to surrender to Him, to ask Him into your heart, however you define it, however you talk about conversion. And then at some elusive point in time, Years, months, days, we don't know. Down the track, you sort of, then there's this other conversation to be had. But when's the right time? And this throws Christians into confusion because, well, I am I spiritual enough now to be baptized? Do I need to hear from God? Do I need a particular call? I might not be. It all, it's almost like we set up the system of enlightenment. It's almost sounding a bit like Buddhism, where it's kind of you've got to reach a plateau of spiritual enlightenment before then you can be baptized. And in a way, it kind of undermines what's happened back here. This was the hard decision. Baptism should be easy after that. After you've made the decision of transforming, coming to Christ, centering yourself on Him, baptism is simply the representation of that, this powerful sign and symbol. So part of the challenge, I think, is that on the one hand we want to say baptism is not what saves you. 
It's not the life-giving power of the water. It's the life-giving power of Jesus that saves you. But at the same time, baptism is something that's supposed to be tied pretty closely to that event because it represents what's actually happening in that event and enables others to see this transformation that's going on, which is otherwise pretty hidden. I think baptism, the relationship of baptism to salvation is a bit like how the wedding rings function in a wedding ceremony. Now imagine a wedding ceremony and the celebrant is taking the service, he's going through the vows, do you, do you, yes, they make commitments. And then he stops the service and he says, now, we're not going to do the rings, but instead I want you to go, be married, live as a married couple for a few years. I want you just to make sure that you're really married. I want you to just get to know each other a bit, experience married life, and then in a few years' time, come back, and we'll have the, the rings ceremony. Now, at that point, people would say, well, hang on, hang on, but we're ready now, right? I mean, we know we've got a lot of growing to do. We know we've got a lot of learning to do, but we're ready. We're commi- today, we're making the commitment. Today's the day we're getting married, so give us the rings. You know, it would seem bizarre to us to separate the rings out. Now, is it the rings that make you married? Of course not. But the rings are the sign and the seal of these sacred promises that you are making to each other. This, I think, is an analogy for how baptism works in the context of conversion. It's not that baptism saves you. It's not that going down and up in the water has any magical or mystical power to it whatsoever. But it is a sign and a seal of the sacred promises that somebody makes as they turn their heart towards Jesus. And that's why it's part of the ceremony. If you think of conversion as a ceremony, like a wedding ceremony, you being united to Jesus, it's part of the ceremony. Now, does that mean that someone that's not baptized is is unsaved? Of course not. There are many Christians, I think, who for whatever reason have never taken the step of baptism, but they've confessed with their heart, they've believed, they have called on the name of Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit, they are forgiven, they are born again Christians. Of course that's possible. I am not in the category of people who would tell you that baptism is some sort of prerequisite and if you don't have it, you're not in. But I would say that if you've never been baptized, even if you've been a Christian for years and years and years, it is still a step of obedience that God calls you to. It doesn't matter how long it's been and it doesn't matter if you wake up the morning after your baptism feeling no different from the morning of your baptism. That's not really the point. The point is that it is a sign and a seal of promises you made however long ago. And it may for you now, if it's been years and years, be a simple step of obedience. But let it be that. Let it be at least that. And let me encourage you, if you've never thought about baptism, if it seems to you some bizarre, ancient, mystical, weird thing, and you're scared of getting wet in front of a whole lot of people, spend at least some time talking to God about it, searching the scriptures over it. The book of Acts is very, very helpful just in seeing how this ceremony, this rings thing worked in the context of conversion. And let me encourage you, if you haven't taken that step, think think seriously about doing it. It is never too late. And God's never tired of hearing someone say, I want to take that step of baptism because I believe that Jesus has died for my sins and I want to be part of that and I want to bring my life to that. And even if I've brought my life to that, I'm going to go through this ceremony to signify and to seal that commitment before other people. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. 
To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.